Okay, it looks like everyone's in, so we can get started. Well, you might wonder how this fits in and, and why is this really that relevant to go through the Bible in translation. Um, I think, uh, as you'll see, it's, it's a very, very important topic, and I ended up um, coming up with so much stuff I wanted to say that we're actually going to have uh, two talks on this. Today, we'll actually go through the, the translation of the Bible. Really, our question is, um, can you trust the Bible? That's what we're trying to answer. Is it really a reliable record? And then next week, we'll talk about the subject of inspiration. Um, I think that's, for our time, such an important issue. What does it mean? The Bible is inspired. When you read in the Old Testament about uh, Sabbath breakers who are to be stoned to death and gluttonous children stoned to death, um, in what sense are those words inspired? Um, or in the New Testament, it is a shameful thing for a woman to speak in church. In what sense are those words inspired? So uh, we have some difficult questions, but that'll be next week. And so for this week, we'll talk about uh, the actual, how the Bible that we hold today came together. Let's pray. Dear Father, again, we ask that we would open our hearts and minds just now, that we would see you, that our trust in you might be improved just by our discussion of this book, that uh, also as we discuss the Bible, that uh, you would stimulate in us a greater desire to read and to communicate with you through this book. In your name we pray, amen. <clears throat> well, actually, this ties in very well with where we are in the Bible study, Ezra and Nehemiah. We talked about how the people came back after the 70 years captivity. And uh, at one point, they decided, hey, let's read this book, the Bible. And we read about this in Nehemiah. By the seventh month, the people of Israel were, were all settled in their towns. On the first day of that month, they all assembled in Jerusalem in the square just inside the water gate. They asked Ezra, the priest and scholar of the law, which the Lord had given Israel through Moses to get the book of the law the Bible. So Ezra brought it to the place where the people had gathered, men, women, and the children who were old enough to understand. There in the square by the gate, he read the law to them from dawn until noon, and they all listened attentively. Now, here's what's very interesting. They gave an oral translation of the law, and I left out a few verses because these uh, men went around and translated what Ezra was reading. So they gave an oral translation of God's law and explained it so that the people could understand it. And the reason they had to translate it is, of course, the Old Testament is Hebrew. The people had been off for 70 years in the Babylonian captivity. Their language was now Aramaic. Uh, the book of Daniel, um, who wrote from Babylon, goes back and forth between Hebrew and Aramaic. So the people now didn't understand Hebrew, and it had to be translated into Aramaic so that they understood the words. But notice, when the people heard what the law required, or other translations, when they understood the meaning, they were so moved that they began to cry. So Nehemiah, who was the governor, Ezra the priest, and the scholar of the law, and the Levites, who were explaining the law, told all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God, so you are not to mourn or cry. So notice, when they really understood what this book was about, what it said, they understood the meaning, uh, they were very moved by it. And what, what we are doing in this Bible study, ultimately all the way through, is we're discussing the meaning, the meaning, the meaning. It is all about the meaning. What we're going to talk about today is, 
can we trust these words as a valid resource for coming to meaningful conclusions? For example, uh, here is part of the Hebrew Bible, Old Testament, and the New Testament is all in Greek. Okay, now, are these inspired to you? Maybe some of you here can read these. I don't know, but um, inspiration is ultimately something that takes place in our minds when we understand, just like those people who were there that heard Ezra reading. So we need to understand these words. Now, there's one significant difference between Christianity and those of Islamic faith. Um, Christianity holds that translations that the the meaning that comes through in the translations is inspired. You do not have to read the Bible in Hebrew and Greek to to get an inspired understanding. For those of Islamic faith, only the original Arabic Quran is inspired. Translations are not considered to be inspired. So there's one uh, rather significant difference there. But I think a valid question here is, what is the Bible? Um, We would probably all answer this way. Well, 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament in Hebrew, some Aramaic, 27 in the New Testament in the Greek. Um, But that is not the Bible, uh, at least if we go back to the time of Jesus and uh, the story of how the Old Testament came together is is fascinating. Less is understood about that. We're going to kind of leave that out. But let's just start from roughly 2,000 years ago. What was the Bible in Jesus' day? And the Bible in Jesus' day was a translation. The Greek Septuagint was translated from the Hebrew several hundred years before Jesus came on the scene, and so the Bible was the Greek Bible. The LXX refers here to the legend of 72 translators who got together, and in 72 days they came out with the Greek translation of the Hebrew. That's a legend. But anyway, the the Septuagint, this was the Bible. And it was the first translation of the Hebrew. And enormously um, significant, even down to our Christian Bible, is this first translation. For example, when Paul would say in 1 Timothy, all scripture is inspired by God, uh, what was he referring to? Uh, The New Testament had not even begun to come together yet. The Bible was the Old Testament, and specifically the Bible was the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Okay, as we'll discuss, the, the whole canon didn't come together until the fourth century. Okay, so Paul is ultimately referring here to the Old Testament. And all of the Old Testament quotes in the New Testament are from the Septuagint. So if you've ever read through, for example, the writings of Paul, and he quotes from the Old Testament, and you read it in the New Testament, then you go back to that verse in Isaiah, and you wonder, why is it so different Why shouldn't it be exactly the same? Well, that's because your Old Testament is now translated from the Hebrew, whereas Paul was quoting from the Greek translation of the Hebrew. So there are some differences. But to this day, the Septuagint is still the authoritative text for the Greek Orthodox Church. And the order of the the books of the Bible in the Old Testament uh, that we have in our Christian Bible is not... Uh, the order in the Hebrew Bible. We get that order from the Greek Septuagint. So there are a lot of um, significant uh, influences from this first translation. Okay, if you were just to ask some people in Jesus' day, what is the Bible? And we ask some Samaritans, what is the Bible? 
And uh, the Samaritans, remember, uh, they lived in the northern kingdom. Remember, those ten tribes were taken off into captivity. Some people stayed behind. They intermarried. And so they were considered by the Jews to really not be fully Jews. They were kind of second-class citizens. Samaritans, in their own mind, felt that they were extremely loyal. And um, anyway, but they considered only the five books of Moses to be the Bible, not the rest of the Old Testament, just those five books of Moses. And so, for example, Jesus, remember, met the, the Samaritan woman at the well. And remember, she was looking for a Messiah as well. And that comes from Deuteronomy. He will send you a prophet like me, like Moses, from among your own people, and you are to obey him. They were waiting for the Messiah as well, and they got that from Deuteronomy, but didn't consider the rest of uh, the Old Testament to be uh, part of the, the canon. What about the Sadducees? Same thing. Their Bible was only the five books of Moses. They did not accept the rest of the Old Testament, and uh, this led to some real theological differences. For example, uh, they did not believe in the resurrection. Some of you might remember when Paul was uh, really in a tight spot and he said, I am here because of the resurrection. And remember, a fight broke out between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. This was a hot issue. You don't find the resurrection in those five books of Moses. So the Samaritans, or I'm sorry, the Sadducees didn't believe in it. Don't find angels in the five books of Moses, so they did not believe in angels. Um, the Essenes, this was a real, very strict... Uh, ascetic group of people, um, and their Bible was a kind of an odd collection of the books of Moses, some of the prophets, the Psalms, and apocryphal works. We'll come to this, but we have the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, we can thank the Essenes for those Dead Sea Scrolls. Again, not agreeing on exactly what was the Bible, however. And the Pharisees, uh, I hope in this one way only, are the most like us. Their Old Testament was the same as our Old Testament, the same 39 books. Okay, and so Jesus could dialogue with them, speaking their language of those 39 books of the Old Testament. Uh, a Catholic Bible is different than uh, the many uh, Christian Bibles. It includes the Apocrypha. Uh, we'll just refer to this a little bit, but um, even by Catholics, it is considered a second class or a deuterocanonical, not fully authoritative like the rest of the Bible. But yet it has a real difference in terms of um, theology. For example, what happens to the soul at the resurrection? Well, from the Book of Wisdom here in the Apocrypha, we get a different explanation and something that you don't find in the 66 books of the Bible. So it does make a real difference. Now, all of these are just some details. The only point I want to make is that this New Testament canon took some time to come together. So some of you may have heard of this uh, Muratorian fragment or canon, which was discovered in the 1730s. And basically, this was the process of the New Testament coming together into a canon. And so they found this list of books that was not the same as the New Testament that we have today. It uh, rejected some books like Hebrews, James, and Peter, Fortunately, rejected the Gnostic writings and it accepted some apocryphal writings. As time goes on here in the 4th century, now we're settled on the 27 books, but the Old Testament is still the Greek Septuagint, still accepting some apocryphal writings. And point is, it wasn't until 397 that we actually have agreed upon, here is the New Testament that we'll accept as the canon along with the Old Testament. So uh, the writings of John, Paul, Peter, uh, this was not the Bible. It was just a collection of 
um, writings that were passed around for hundreds of years until it actually came together as a book. Okay, we have to say just a little bit about manuscripts. We have no original composition of any part of the Bible. We have copies of copies of copies of copies of copies. Um, all of these uh, scrolls and things, uh, there are no originals. So this is why I think, one reason I think this subject is important is I think it's reasonable to ask, well, is it reliable then? I mean, if we're just passing on copies, can you really trust all of those copies over such a long period of time to have adequately translated the Bible? Some interesting details. The Masoretes added vowels between 500 and 700 AD. The, the Hebrew is just consonants that you read right to left. And uh, the vowels were known only by oral, oral tradition, where those vowels go. And so those were added uh, not until 500, 700 AD. It's really remarkable. There's nothing inspired about the chapters or the verses. So those were added much later. You see chapters added around 1240, verses in 1551. And oftentimes the chapters occur at the worst possible time. We'll talk about an example in Romans where you might finish with uh, Romans, I believe it's chapter 7. And if you don't read Romans 8.1, you miss out on the whole meaning. So there's nothing inspired about where those chapters and verses are located. Okay, before we really get into the interesting part of the Reformation, I think there's one important point. And that is the ancient versions of the Bible are a tribute to the great success of early Christianity. Oftentimes we really don't know much at all about what was going on, except that the Bible was translated there, which meant there was some success. And so um, the Bible was translated in Aramaic, Arabic, uh, Muhammad quoted and read from the Bible, uh, Syriac, uh, Egyptian version, the Latin. We need to spend a lot of time talking about this. And here's an important point that the Western church completely adopted Latin as the language. That had some very significant influences. There were other um, versions in the Western church. You can find online a 7th century Anglo-Saxon version. It's completely unreadable. looks nothing like uh, English today. And then the Eastern church, by contrast, adopted the Greek version. So we have the Latin in the West, the Greek in the East, and we have all these other versions look, going out to Persian and Chinese. So the Bible was really widely translated uh, well over a thousand years ago. Now here is something important for us. The most significant translation of the Bible for over a thousand years was the Latin Vulgate. And many things, theological issues today come from this translation of the Bible. Uh, basically there were lots of really lousy Latin translations. And so finally they uh, gave Jerome the job of translating the Bible into Latin. Okay, so this is around 405 AD. And it was a good translation. He was a scholar of Greek, Latin, had some training in Hebrew. And here's the interesting thing. He went against the trend and translated the Latin from both the Greek and the Old Testament from the Hebrew. Uh, we'll see this again and again, that people tend to adopt one translation to be the inspired translation. And in that time, the Greek Septuagint, that was the uh, inspired translation. So for him to translate the Old Testament from the Hebrew, was uh, he got a lot of heat um, for that. Um, but he did, and it's a good translation. He did, and I think it's also worthwhile noting that he did not want to include the apocryphal writings. That was not his choice, but they're in there. 
And for that time, it's a great translation. And just notice this, for a thousand years, the Latin Vulgate was the Bible. From the 6th to the 16th century, the recognized text of scripture, it is still the official language of the Catholic Church. But just listen to these words here. These are Latin words, justification, sanctification, expiation, propitiation, salvation, reconciliation. All of these theological words come from Latin. Now, here is the question. To many, it just sounds completely wrong to use any other word to describe theological issues other than these uh, Latin words. And as we come to modern translations, we'll discuss, for example, the the version that all frequently use, uh, today's English version, does not use the Latin. Justified is put right. Um, is it fair? Or is, an, is the translation into English today, can we only use the Latin words? Um, Paul never used the word propitiation or justification. He used Greek words. And so can they be translated into today's English is the question. Jerome was... Uh, uh, really known as uh, kind of a grouchy person. And just as an example, to his detractors, he called them two-legged asses and yelping dogs and people who think that ignorance is identical with holiness. He had quite a, a reputation. But anyway, it's a good translation. Now, here is the thinking during this 1,000-year period of time. And this is what the Reformation was up against. Here's a quote from Pope Gregory VII. For it is clear to those who reflect upon it that not without reason has it pleased Almighty God that Holy Scripture should be a secret in certain places, lest, if it were plainly apparent to all men, perchance it would be little esteemed or be subject to disrespect, or it might be falsely understood by those of mediocre learning and lead to error. So, in other words, the idea was you can't put the Bible in the language of a common person. It has to be understood by scholars and priests. And so there was great effort to keep the Latin as the only Bible and not to give it to the people uh, in their own language. And so Wycliffe, not surprisingly, uh, the morning star of the Reformation, who really, he anticipated the Reformation. He had the idea, no, we need it in the language that the people can understand. And you can understand why Wycliffe was uh, not appreciated by some. His philosophy was that the Bible is the sole criteria of doctrine, not the church or the pope, and that the authority of the pope is not found in scripture. And so um, when you have uh, a land that is dominated by Catholicism, uh, not surprising, he had a hard time of it. So, but his translation is a handwritten translation from the Latin, not going back to the originals, but from the Latin, and it is very difficult, very literal, wooden. Um, but for 150 years, it was the English Bible. It was the only Bible that could be read in uh, English. Here's just an issue, though. Jesus did not speak Greek. He spoke Aramaic. There are a few times where we have his actual words quoted in Aramaic. But just consider this here. We go from Jesus' words in Aramaic. We, the New Testament is a Greek translation of his Aramaic words. Then we have the Latin Vulgate, which is a translation of the Greek. And now we have an English translation of the Latin to the Greek to the Aramaic. The point is we want to get as close as possible to the original. Okay, that is the ideal. So there are about 180 copies of the Wycliffe Bible, handwritten. 
And then soon after that, we have the Reformation. And a number of things came together. But one important thing, remember I said that the Eastern Church was Greek. And when Constantinople fell in 1453, all of the Greek scholars and manuscripts came west. And initially, this did not uh, do much for the Bible. But people like Plato in Western civilization, this was being read in a Latin translation. And people discovered, wow, Plato in the Greek is much better, much more interesting. And that stimulated, hey, you know what? Why don't we read the Bible in the original language, in the Greek? And so this combined with the printing press, and now we have a printed version of the Hebrew, the original Old Testament. And we have a printed publication of the Greek, the original New Testament in 1516. And this just sparked incredible things. The Bible from these original manuscripts now is translated into many languages. And we, we focus on English so much. But just look at all of the different versions that were translated at this time. French, Spanish, Dutch, Swedish, Czech, Finnish, Hungarian, Polish. The Bible is now in the language of the common person. And we need to spend a little time talking about German, of course, the Luther Bible. And uh, then the rest of our time will be on the English Bible. Now, what happens is when you have the Bible now from original languages, it created a lot of tension because now the scholar is reading a better version than the priest, and so that created conflict. And now you have the common person having frequently a better knowledge of Scripture than the priest. They're reading in their own language. They understand it. And the priest frequently had become lazy because the people didn't know the Scripture and they could say things without much concern about being checked. And now you have the common person really understanding what is in the Bible. And so what ultimately came out of all this is that medieval Catholicism was challenged on a number of viewpoints. And here are just a few of them. In contrasting the wealth, prosperity, and pomposity of the church in that time, and then you look at the humble carpenter of Nazareth, uh, there's a contrast there. Should the Church of Christ look like Christ, who was humble, um, who was, I mean, wandered around, um, you know, not asking for money? And so some of these conflicts began to be perceived. Uh, questions about sacraments. Do we find that in Scripture? Indulgences. Of course, for Luther, this was such a big issue. Uh, righteousness by faith, only by faith. And his problem here is, boy, if you can pay for an indulgence, then basically you can work your way into heaven. And so he obviously went against this. No, it's only by faith. Uh, do we need someone in between, a priest or a saint, in between us and God, if we really believe that Jesus is fully God? And what did he do? I mean, he hung out with the outcasts of society. That was God in human form. Do we need a better person than us to put in a good word for us, for God? Um, of course, the intercessor is Jesus. Who's Jesus? He's God. And so some of these things about the need for someone in between were questioned. Obviously, purgatory uh, was challenged. The monasticism, which had uh, on many levels uh, been harmful to culture in that time, was challenged. And transubstantiation, which is that the blood, the bread, actually becomes the body, the blood of Jesus Christ inside a person. Uh, all of these things were discussed and, and challenged. 
Okay, so just a little bit about uh, Luther, his translation of the Bible. It was from the Greek and the Hebrew. He went back to the best original sources that were available in that time. And uh, I'm sure some of you have heard the terms sola scriptura, the Bible, the Bible only. Um, you know, with giving all tribute and respect to Luther, we have to say that he didn't really hold to that all the way through. For example, he considered Hebrews, James, Jude, and Revelation of much lesser quality. In his introduction to his New Testament, he said James is a letter written in straw because he just couldn't, um, had a hard time with the things that are discussed about works in the book of James. And about Revelation, he said, I can in no way detect that the Holy Spirit produced it. That's a pretty strong uh, statement by Luther. But one reason is this. Luther rejected all forms of allegory as a means of, under, means of understanding scripture. Everything was literal, and it is very hard to read the book of, Lever, of Revelation and hold everything to a literal understanding. So not surprisingly, um, he was not uh, a big fan of the book of Revelation. Okay, now let's talk a little bit about the English translations. William Tyndale is really the hero of our English Bible. He is the father of the English Bible and um, educated Oxford, Cambridge in Greek and Hebrew. He used the same original languages that Luther did based on the Greek and Hebrew and his New Testament was completed in 1525. Here was his philosophy. He said to a priest, if God spare my life ere many years, I will cause a boy that driveth the plow to know more of the scripture than thou dost. Okay, and he was successful. He was known as a great linguist. Some of these are kind of funny, um, but the way he would translate the snake and the tree, tush, he shall not die. The Lord was with Joseph and he was a lucky fellow. <laughs> but here's what's significant. 80%, perhaps 90% of the English Bible, the King James, all the way down to the Revised Version, is the Bible of Tyndale. Okay, his influence was enormous. And uh, just if, I don't know if you can uh, read this, but here is John chapter one. And just see if it sounds familiar. In the beginning was that word, and that word was with God, and God was that word. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by it, and without it was made nothing that made was. So anyway, yeah, it's, it's a little different, but uh, a lot of the language, uh, 80, 90% of our King James and all the way down to the revised version is Tyndale. Now here was a big problem and this is where a great success of the King James. The footnotes in the Bible, and of course none of the footnotes in our Bibles today are inspired, but there were horrible footnotes in these Bibles. Uh, just a few here. Tyndale's Bible in reference to 666, he said clearly, this is referring to the Pope. <laughs> and then he said, oh, abominable Pope with all his idols in the footnotes. And there's a passage in scripture about someone's neck being broken. He said, this is a good text for the Pope. So, and not surprisingly, what happened to Tyndale? Uh, he was uh, strangled and burned to death. And his dying words were, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. And that was Henry VIII. Now remember that because this is interesting. His eyes were opened later on. Okay, and then a bunch of different versions after this. There was the Coverdale Bible, the first printed, um, but again, the Old Testament based on the Vulgate, so not going back to the original language. We have the Matthews Bible, which was written by John Rogers, but to protect himself, 
He called it the Matthews Bible, a pseudonym. Didn't help. He was burned alive in 1555. And uh, it is said that Rogers died with such composure that it might have been a wedding. We have the Taverner's Bible, the Great Bible. This is the huge Bible that was chained in the churches, 15 inches by 10 inches. And it was a revision of previous Bibles. And so here is the, the Great Bible. Now, here's what I just find so amazing. You're not going to be able to make this out, but there's a picture when you open the Great Bible. And in it, uh, up here somewhere, is Henry VIII, and he is very sanctimoniously handing out Bibles to the people. And somewhere in here it says, Long live the king. And this was Henry VIII that had Tyndale burned to death. And now he's passing out, uh, what does it say here, the Bible in English when he was so opposed to it just a short time earlier. Okay, then there's Edmund's Beck Bible, which was, I guess, an influential Bible. And this is just to make a point about footnotes. Now, this is the Good News translation, and then we'll read Edmund's Beck, Edmund Beck's footnote. In the same way, you husbands must live with your wives with the proper understanding that they are more delicate than you. Treat them with respect. Here is Edmund Beck's uninspired footnote. And if she be not obedient and helpful unto him, endeavoreth to beat the fear of God <laughs> into her head. So... Again, these, these footnotes, it was finally decided they have to go. And uh, that, that was the beauty of the King James Version. Okay, the Geneva Bible. We talk about Bibles of great influence, uh, translations of great influence, the Septuagint, the Latin Vulgate, certainly uh, Luther's Bible. Uh, this was a Bible of great influence for 200 years. This was the dominant Bible. And so the persecution in England led these people to flee to Switzerland. The main translator was William Whittenham. And this was so successful, it was a new edition came out every year from 1560 to 1616. Even though the King James came out in 1611, the Geneva Bible was the dominant Bible for a long time. It took the King James uh, a great period of time to overcome the Geneva Bible in terms of being popular. It was the Bible of Shakespeare. Um, so Shakespeare quoted the Bible so much, all of that's from the Geneva Bible. It was John Bunyan's Bible. The captain of the Mayflower, uh, I, I heard, was asked to take a copy of the King James. And he said, I don't want that newfangled version with me. He wanted the Geneva Bible. So again, we're always spooked out with the new. The Puritan, it was a Puritan Bible. It was King James Bible. And again, the most popular Eng English Bible for almost 200 years. It was the first... English Bible, they have chapters and verses. It's known as the Britches Bible because this quote, they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves britches. But it still had those footnotes. Okay, we're not up to the King James yet. So the angel of the bottomless pit, again, clearly the Pope. <laughs> and so King James said, okay, we, we need a new version here that does better than this. Um, the Bishop's Bible, uh, it just was not, didn't catch on but it's important since the King James was a revision of the Bishop's Bible, not a new translation. Rems Dewey, so the, the Catholics got involved and did a translation, and they got back with their footnotes. So this was a translation not from the original languages, but from the Latin. And again, as some Christians often hold up the King James as the only real inspired version for many Catholics, the Rems Dewey was the inspired version of scripture for a period of time. 
So footnotes, the Protestants are referred to as heretics. Um, and in a footnote on the uh, 666 uh, goes something like, we could easily prove this is Martin Luther, but we won't do him the honor of doing so, or something like that in, in the book of Revelation. So a passage here, this is again the good news translation, but you cannot be a slave of two masters. You will hate one and love the other. You will be loyal to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And the Rems Dewey has a footnote, two religions, God and Baal, Christ and Calvin, mass and communion, the Catholic Church and heretical conventicles. So again, these footnotes are going back and forth and this didn't help things because people would have a Protestant Bible that would slam the Catholics and the Catholics would have their Bible that would slam the Protestants and it just uh, inflamed things up more and more. So finally, thankfully, the King James Bible comes along in 1611. And the way they put this Bible together, it has been the model for every successive translation of the Bible. Fifty learned men worked together on this. Uh, One of the main people was Lancelot Andrews. And it was said about him that had he been president at the Tower of Babel, he could have served as interpreter general. He was so good with languages and interpretation. And so their rules, and I won't read through this, but basically they use the Bishop's Bible. I mean, you should read the preface to the King James, which is not printed in any of the King James Bibles today. Um, They were not at all subscribing, this is it, this is the translation. They were in favor of lots of translations. And their marginal notes were only used to explain the Greek and the Hebrew. They used the Greek and the Hebrew to uh, refine previous versions. So they did go back to the original languages. And as I mentioned a few weeks ago, italics were used to indicate a word that is not present in the original. So again, when Jesus said to the guards, I am he, the he's in italics. He said to them, I am, and they all fell down. But it's helpful to know uh, the function of those italics. So again, King James is a revision, not a new translation. The translators themselves state this in the preface. And so it's a revision, um, but just ultimately here, The credit, in terms of vocabulary, should go to Tyndale, the expression to the Coverdale, the scholarship to the Geneva Bible. So they used all of these uh, resources. Now, it's interesting. The printed version of the King James had one error for every 10 pages. And amazingly, these are still, many of them persist in your current King James. Even when I go online to look up King James, it's, it's there. For example... Matthew 23, ye blind guides which strain at a gnat. This was not a problem with the translators. This was a printing error that has persisted, should be strain out a gnat. I I have no idea why it isn't fixed, but some of them they did fix. For example, the 1631 printed edition, thou shalt commit adultery. So um, they got that one fixed. Okay, but the beauty of the King James, and this is so familiar, um, I think, to all of us. It's just, it is uh, poetry, so much of it. Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened to you. Uh, It is just very, very well translated. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Um, So many familiar words to us come from this uh, beautiful King James translation. But now, with all respect and reverence, we have to say that there are some weaknesses to the King James. And really, I only bring this up because, surprisingly, there are many people who just feel like that's it. That's the Bible. Use another Bible. It's uh, heretical. 
First of all, the, the original text for the King James, and it wasn't their fault, they just didn't have the best original text at that time. And maybe I won't go through this. It's an interesting story here with Erasmus of Rotterdam who came up with this Textus Recepticus, which was the, the Greek. Um, it's, it is just not a good uh, Greek. He didn't even have a complete Greek um, text. In some places in Revelation, he had to translate from the Latin into Greek. And then that Greek was used to make the English Bible which is why you'll find some dramatic differences in the King James Version in the end of Revelation. And uh, again, just did not have the oldest text. They had texts going back to the 10th century. And of course, recent discoveries, uh, things going way back to the 5th century are much more reliable. And there are admittedly many errors in the book of Job and Isaiah, but a great Bible, the best Bible to date. Also, knowledge of Hebrew came from the Hebrew Bible. And of course now, understanding of other related languages to Hebrew, um, all of that knowledge is brought to translating the Hebrew. Same thing with the Greek. And one of the biggest issues, of course, is that the English language has changed. Jesus' words, Verily I say unto thee, Thou shalt by no means come out thence till thou hast paid the uttermost farthing. Look how many words in here are just not used today. Is it okay if we make this into contemporary words that are understandable. Or when Paul would say, lest happily, if they of Macedonia come with me and find you unprepared, we, that we say not ye, should be ashamed in this same confident boasting. It is, it's difficult. And of course, this doesn't mean they were happily merrily alone. This meant an entirely different word. The, The meaning of these words changed. Or maybe some of you can explain this to me. From which some have Swerved, have turned aside into vain jangling. What is vain jangling? And uh, so, oh, and one more. And Jonathan stripped himself to his girdle. And we're tempted to imagine Jonathan as a cross-dresser or something, which of course had no, uh, doesn't mean that at all. But to our ears, there are many places where it just sounds foreign. And so there have been these wonderful revisions of the King James um, going all the way down to the New Revised Standard, using the more uh, older manuscripts to make it up to date and to make it more accurate. Here's a quote that I appreciated. To many people, the King James sounds like the Bible because it is different than our modern English. It is old and therefore seems to be authoritative, and other Bibles just don't sound right. Most Bible translators greatly respect the King James for what it is and what it was, but the King James can't be used in modern translation work for the simple reason that its language and its text, the original versions, are out of date. So it's a great version. Okay, there were a lot of private versions, and we'll skip over this because there are a couple other key points I want to make just before we close. But what happened after the King James was that there became this great thirst to find the best ancient manuscripts. This quote from the mid-1800s. The Greek manuscripts had shown beyond question that the King James was based upon a Greek text that contained the accumulated errors of 15 centuries of manuscript copying. And today, remarkably, there are 5,000 Greek New Testament manuscripts that date back prior to the 5th century. Why is it important? The closer we get to when it was originally written, the, better, the more likely we are to have an adequate uh, translation. And I'll just give you a couple interesting stories. There was this uh, German Bible scholar, Constantine von Tischendorf, who was uh, 
traveling around looking for ancient manuscripts. And in 1844, he was at this uh, monastery, and after looking all day in the library, he went to bed, and a monk came by and asked, do you want me to light a fire for you? And he looked and he saw that what he was using to start the fire were these ancient manuscripts. And he got up and found that these were actually part of a complete Greek New Testament that went all the way back to 340 A.D. Now, considering that 1000 A.D. was our most reliable manuscript for the King James, and here he found this complete set Old and New Testament. And now it's in the British Museum. And I'll just bring up one more. Here's an incredible one. It's labeled P52, and this is a facsimile of it. And this is the oldest known fragment of the New Testament, 125 AD. That is really going back. And it's the incredible passage here in John 18, where Pilate said, Are you the king of the Jews? And I was born and came into the world for this one purpose, to speak about the truth. And Pilate, of course, responded, What is truth? And What's so incredible is uh, there are often lots of claims in the Bible about, well, this book was written at this time, authoritatively. And the book of John was thought for a long time to be written hundreds and hundreds of years after the fact, not written by John. But when we have a manuscript that's dated 125 AD from John, well, that makes it pretty likely that it actually was written by John. So anyway, these stories are all uh, very colorful. The Dead Sea Scrolls discovered in 1947-48. These were found in a cave. A boy was throwing a rock up into a cave and he heard something breaking. And they discovered that it was these jars that contained all of these ancient manuscripts a thousand years earlier than any of the best uh, texts that had been used, most of the Old Testament. And here's the thing, and this for me is very significant. Can we really trust the Bible? Uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls date to the time of Christ or before the time of Christ. Now, the question is, so we have all these manuscripts from 1000 AD and later. Wouldn't you expect there to be dramatic changes? And that's the remarkable thing. There were not dramatic changes. Um, there were surprisingly few differences. And so the quote here that I like, this shows that Jewish scribes for over a millennium copied one form of the text with extreme fidelity. In other words, you really can trust those words in the Bible. They have been um, adequately preserved. I'm going to close with this. John 1.18, in a familiar translation, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. Now, I understand that the oldest and most reliable manuscripts actually translate this verse this way. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. And uh, most likely, it just didn't quite fit the theology of the day, so it was changed to the only begotten Son. Now, some versions come out with that point, the good news, no one has ever seen God or really seen God. The only Son who is the same as God and is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So there are subtle changes, but the point is the, the, the Bible is absolutely trustworthy, reliable, and I'm going to spend some, at the beginning next time, going through the versions after the King James, and then we'll get to the subject of inspiration. All right, let's pray. Dear Father, thank you that your hand was so much involved in the Bible that we have today that is more than at any other time, so well translated, so available, and help us to take advantage 
of um, this book that so many people died to preserve and to translate into a language we can understand and help us to learn to communicate with you um, as we read this book and to come closer to our understanding of who you are. In your name we pray. Amen.